0: He hangs there, so it's a it's a spectacular psalm. In Acts two three or two thirty, we read of David being called a prophet. Peter called him a prophet, and and thus here in Psalm twenty two, he prophetically speaks of the cross by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's start off by reading verses one and two. First of all, the title to the chief musicians. Set to the deer of the dawn a psalm of David my God my God why have you forsaken me why are you so far from helping me as from the wo- words of my groaning and from the words of my groaning oh my God I cry in the daytime but you do not hear and in the night season and I'm not silent so I mean these words have got to be real familiar to us The psalm opens up with the words that Jesus cried from the cross. Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry during the the daytime, he says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear. And in the night season, remember that it was daytime, it was like a normal day outside from 9 in the morning till 12 noon. But then at 12 noon, from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, it became dark. Even though it was day, it became dark. (coughs) And so, he cries out, and his, his cry seems to fall on deaf ears. What was going on here? Why did God the Father turn his back on God the Son? Well, we've talked about this before. Remember Habakkuk 1.13. God cannot look upon sin. So, as Christ bore our sins, there was a time when fellowship was broken between the Father and the Son. You see, in the garden prior to the cross, Jesus sweat tears of blood. Or or beads of, you know, he sweat blood. He was in agony. Regarding what was ahead of him. But I don't think it was because of the pain of the crucifixion. Which was intense, no doubt. But I think it was that of the separation from the Father. That he agonized over more than anything else. He had never experienced it before. He was always one with the Father. It goes on to verse 3. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Again, we see the reason why God can't look upon sin. Because He is a holy God. So as Isaiah 53, 6 says of Jesus, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It goes on in verse 4 and says, Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. This is speaking of Israel's history now. How God had delivered them in times of trouble. And then verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus called himself a worm. The Hebrew word there is tola. Why did he call himself a worm? Well, with this worm that he's speaking about here specifically, with this worm's dead body, they would extract a dye from it, whereby you could dye your garments scarlet. And that's what they did with this particular worm. Um, As the worm was ready to give birth, it would climb a tree and it would permanently attach itself to a branch or to the trunk of the tree and as it gave birth it it would the eggs that it it would lay would be underneath the body protected by the body while the body was stuck to the tree and when those eggs uh, became ready to hatch, essentially. Um, in that process, the worm would die. The mother worm would die, and and but as it died, what it was doing was bringing forth new life. And as it died, it would leave this scarlet stain on that tree. And I think what Jesus is saying to us is that in His death, He gives new life. The new birth. Um, We're new creatures in Christ Jesus, according to Corinthians. The old things have passed. The new has begun. And so, just as this worm, when it died, it, it brought forth new life. And left behind its scarlet mark on the tree. When Jesus died, he left his scarlet mark on the cross. And from his death comes forth new life. So it's, it's, it's a very fascinating comparison. Uh, Jesus said, I am a tola. I am this worm. And without, what, without Jesus, without what he did on the cross for us, there is no new life. He says, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And this is exactly what happened. They mocked him as he hung on the cross. Check out Matthew 27, 41 to 43. Those very words were uttered by his enemies. So, do you see why this is such an incredible prophecy? Not only are the events that that actually happened to Jesus being spoken about some 1,000 years before their fulfillment, but even the very words of his accusers and enemies are recorded for us here in some pretty incredible detail. Now, no one to my knowledge believes that this psalm was written after the crucifixion of Jesus. You'd have to be a fool to believe that. It was part of the Hebrew Bible before Jesus. So it couldn't have been written after him. So it must have been written before, and that makes it a fantastic example of fulfilled prophecy which testifies to the inspiration of the Scriptures. So, for your inquisitive yet unbelieving friends... Here's yet another example of the reliability and the inspiration of the Bible that you can point them to. Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. What this is saying is is that he, he was very aware of his relationship with God at a very early age. Now, we know at the age of 12 that Jesus knew very, very exactly what his purpose was all about. But this may imply that that he was aware even long before that time. By the way, Luke 2.49 speaks about his encounter with those in the temple at the age of 12. Verse 9, But you are he... Oh, I already read that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near... For there is none to help. We remember it when Jesus was in the garden praying before the arrest. He was essentially alone, wasn't he? The twelve were there, and, and the three were close by, but they were all asleep. No one would stay awake and, and pray with him. Matthew twenty six, thirty six to forty six. And as he hung on the cross, he was essentially alone too. The only ones standing with him were John, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and a few other women. Even God the Father turned his face from Jesus for a time when he bore our sins upon himself. Verse 12 Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The the bulls of Bashan were large animals that were known for their strength. And so this is probably a reference to those Pharisees and Sadducees that had called for the death of Jesus and had used their political clout to make it happen. They were the bulls of of Bashan that gaped at him with their mouths. So on. Verse 14, he says, now this is an interesting passage here, 14 and 15. I am poured out like water And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. So this is a, a vivid description of physically the result of crucifixion. Crucifixion is certainly one of the most painful ways to die. The victim would hang on the cross anywhere from hours to several days until he died. He would become dehydrated, delirious, and eventually his bones would be actually pulled out of joint. Now remember that execution by crucifixion was unknown at the time that David wrote this. Some believe that the Assyrians uh, practiced a form of crucifixion when they would essentially impale their victims on a post. But it was the Romans who refined it. It was the Romans who invented the type of crucifixion that was used on Jesus. And yet, though David knew nothing about the practice of Roman crucifixion or Assyrian crucifixion, he describes pretty accurately the effects of death by crucifixion. Being poured out like water probably refers to the profuse perspiration brought on by the tremendous physical exertion while hanging on the cross. During the crucifixion, Jesus developed an incredible thirst, probably from all the sweating. So, uh, as John 19.28 records, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. It took every bit of physical strength that a person had to keep from suffocating. Eventually, he would die of suffocation because he could no longer have the strength to push his body up to expand his diaphragm so that he could get a breath. As he hung there on the cross with his arms stretched out before him, his diaphragm is essentially pushed up, pushed up up against the lungs. And so what he would have to do would be pushed down on the nail that secured his feet so that he could push his body up, so that he could lower the diaphragm low enough to get air into his lungs. But in the process, in the pain and and uh, the agony and the, the fatigue of it all, eventually his body gave way and slumped, pushing again his diaphragm up into his lungs, preventing him from getting a breath and thereby dying of suffocation. And in then, and then the process too, Pulling many of his body, uh, his bones out of joint because he could no longer hold himself together, essentially. So imagine how terrible the suffering must have been. And yet, what did Jesus die from? From suffocation? Probably not. It seems that he may have died of a ruptured or broken heart, as the pericardium or the sac around his heart filled with blood. Then as the spear was thrust up into his side, it says there in John 19.34 that blood and water came flowing out. The blood signifying his atoning death for us and the water perhaps of baptism. Verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Notice this. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. So the dog spoken of here probably referring to the Gentiles and more specifically the Roman soldiers. How did the Jews deal with capital punishment? When the Jews wanted to put somebody to death, how did they do it? They stoned them, that's right. But here, 800 years before crucifixion was even invented, David tells us that the hands and feet of Jesus were to be pierced as he hung on the tree and then pulling his bones out of the joint pretty graphic and and you remember that it was the wounds that were left in the hands and the feet of Jesus that became the proof to Thomas that Jesus was actually alive again John uh, chapter 20 verse 25 and Luke 23:35 actually records the fulfillment of verse 17 when it says they look and stare at me verse um, 18 they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots hi Jerry we see this fulfilled again Matthew 25 verse 35 John 1924. In fact John actually says that this verse was fulfilled in what the soldiers did that day. John refers back to this particular verse and says that what the soldiers did when they cast lots and they divided up his his garments it was this verse was fulfilled. So in these verses we've seen some very detailed prophecy concerning the crucifixion all of which was fulfilled to the T some 1,000 years later. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Interesting, he says, save me from the power of the dog. With criminals, um, like Jesus was supposed to be, they would uh, remove their bodies and they would throw them into a common grave, an open grave, and quite often dogs would come and feast on their flesh. But God spared Jesus of that because the body of Jesus was taken by Joseph of Arimathea and placed in a new tomb and sealed. So he was saved. Deliver me, he says. Save me. You have answered me. Okay, now this is, this is essentially the, the first section of, of the psalm. And we're going to move into the second section. Now, the first section was uh, the view of the crucifixion from the cross by Jesus. And then the second section here from verses 22 to the end is the answer to um, Jesus or the forsaken one. He says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. I believe he's talking here about the three days and three nights that Jesus spent in Hades. Um, when he says there, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I think it's talking about that period of three days and three nights when, when Jesus went to that place known as Abraham's bosom, um, where those who had died believing in the promises of God waited for the Messiah. And, and he shared the gospel with them. He shared the good news with them. And when he was done sharing with them the truths of God, Abraham's bosom was empty. And the only part of Hades now that remains is that part that's occupied uh, where the unfaithful are. You can read about this in Luke chapter 16. Jesus talks about it. Some people want to consider that a parable, but I don't think it was. Because in parables, Jesus never mentions personal names. But in that one, he does. So I think he's telling a real-life story about this place called Hades um, in the Old Testament. And so that's what I think this is talking about here. Now, verse 25, he says, "...my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord." Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. David is speaking here now of those entering, I think, into the kingdom age. He's saying that all those entering into the kingdom age shall praise him. All the ends of the earth, notice, it says, shall remember and turn to the Lord And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The only time that's going to happen is in the kingdom age. When Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. Then everybody is going to bow. Verse 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. Paul said in Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's speaking of both the saved and the unsaved. For the saved, they're going to enter into eternity with him. For the unsaved, and I think that's this group, he says, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Uh, For the unsaved, even though they now bow before him at the judgment, since they rejected him in life, they will enter eternity separated from him. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. I think this is again speaking about the kingdom age. The stories of what God has done will be retold to those born in the kingdom age, and God will be known throughout the land. Again the closing words of Jesus as he hung on the cross of Calvary were the the Greek is to telesti, or It is finished or paid in full. (laughs) Paid in full. All our sins were paid for on the cross by Jesus. And we should tell others not only what he's done for us, but what he's done for them too. Amen? Amen. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. As we've seen, Psalm 22 presents Jesus as our Savior. The crucifixion. I believe Psalm 23 presents Jesus as our shepherd. And Psalm 24 will present Jesus as our sovereign or our king. Another way to look at these psalms is by seeing them as the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and the coming again of Jesus. Certainly, Psalm 23 is the most well-known psalm by just about anyone. But certainly the most well known psalm by unbelievers. In fact, it would probably be safe to say that the 23rd psalm is the most well known and memorized passage in the entire Bible. And yet, it has definitely been misused over the years, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 1 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is important because this is the place, I think, where many people misuse the psalm. You see, it's not enough that the Lord is a shepherd or even the shepherd. He must be your shepherd or my shepherd. And understand, we all have shepherds or somebody or something that is leading or guiding us. If your shepherd is not the Lord, you'll never be satisfied never if your shepherd is the lord then you can rest in him and and you need nothing else because he will supply your needs there is an outward peace to your life as you rest in him the lord is my shepherd that is so important it's critical you know if and and You know, I've done my share of funerals and I've done a number of them for non-believers. Where the person who died was an unbeliever or maybe many in the family were unbelievers. It's interesting that in most of them, or in many of them at least, they want to read the 23rd Psalm. It provides comfort. But really when you think about it, and you know I I don't think I'll ever look at this psalm the same way again after having considered this aspect of it. If the Lord is not your shepherd, then none of the rest of it applies. You can't claim the benefits of it if the Lord is not your shepherd. Psalm uh, verse 2 says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. You know, sheep are very anxious creatures and they will not lie down unless there is a freedom from fear and a freedom from hunger. You see, as we feed on His Word, we are satisfied. And we can rest (coughs) in the refreshing waters that He can give. Here, again, we see an inward peace that is only found in Christ when He is my shepherd. Verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. I think some translate that uh, He leads me in the paths of safety. Same thing, essentially, spiritually speaking. If if you, you know, if you, Have the righteousness of Christ. You are in a place of safety. You don't have to worry about the wrath of God, right? So he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. When it says he restores my soul, it could be a reference to the rescue of a lost one. Certainly, that's what God has done for us by saving us. He has restored our soul. He has rescued us from being lost. He also leads us. The shepherd was a guide. The sheep didn't need to know where the green pastures or the still waters were. All they needed to know was where the shepherd was. The shepherd would guide the sheep to what they needed. God leads us in the right paths. He is leading us in the way that we should go. And as difficult and dangerous as it may seem at times, it is the right path for us. It is the safe path. It is the righteous path, if you will. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And that's all we really need to know. That he is leading us. If we know that he is leading us, then the destination shouldn't matter nearly as much. Because he knows where the food is. <laughs> he, he knows where the safety is. Yea, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. So, this is really the first dark note in this beautiful psalm. Previously, David wrote of green pastures and still waters and Paths of righteousness. Yet, when following the Lord as shepherd, we may still walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And this isn't necessarily a pleasant place for us to be. A valley suggests being hedged in and surrounded. The idea of death is often what seems to us as the ultimate defeat, an evil that can come upon us. And the shadow of death, the shadow of death is not death itself, but the shadow of fear that it sometimes casts on us. You know, C.S. Lewis says that, that we all live our lives in the Shadowlands. That's what that movie, you know, about his wife and her uh, dying was called Shadowlands. It's because he believes that we live in the Shadowlands. But David says there's no fear in this. Why not? Well, because the Good Shepherd is leading us. There is comfort and protection found in Him. And certainly this phrase has been the comfort of many, many a dear saint that's close to death, giving them the courage and the strength to walk through it without fear. So, Let me give you a quote from Spurgeon here. He says, Death in its substance has been removed, and only the shadow of it remains. Someone has said that when there is a shadow, there must be light somewhere. And so there is. Death stands by the side of the highway in which we have to travel. And the light of heaven shining upon him throws a shadow across our path. Let us then rejoice that there is a light beyond. Nobody is afraid of a shadow. For a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Isn't that wonderful? Just remember, whenever you see a shadow, that means there must be light close by. In the midst of the shadow, look to the light. And you'll find your way. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Notice the table of, of God's bounty is prepared right in the presence of our enemies. That suggests that God doesn't need to eliminate our enemies in order for him to provide for us and for us to be satisfied. God doesn't say here that he'll get rid of our enemies. They may still be around. But he will provide for us and we will enjoy our provision as long as we stay focused on him and not the enemy. The one whose head is anointed with oil, I've shared this with you many times before, is the one who is loved what he talks about there. You anoint my head with oil. The more oil that was used, the more love that was expressed. What a gracious host as God not only fills our life, but overflows our life. Notice the overflowing cup. What a beautiful act, description of the Christian life. Not just peace, or peace that passes human understanding. Not just joy, but joy indescribable and full of glory. <laughs> I love that. My cup runs over, he says. And then he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Can you really say that? you really believe that goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life? Even in the midst of very hard times, do you believe that that is true? If the Lord is your shepherd, then it is true. Even though there are days when we're not sure, <laughs> you know, based on how we feel. But how we feel is not as important as who He is. And what He is doing for us. Amen? And when our days come to an end, God says, your days have been numbered and finished, he says, all the days of my life. He says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As you follow the shepherd all your days, as you come to the end of the path that he has set for you, you will enter into eternity with him. Paul said in Second Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 2, he said, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Then verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. And then Jesus said in John 142 2-3, He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What will that be like? You know, what kind of a body will I have? What will be the capacities? What will be the feelings? What will be the duties? What, you know, what am I going to do? Don't know. It's interesting that the Lord doesn't give us very much insight into those kinds of things. And I think the reason why he doesn't is probably that we just couldn't handle it. We just, you know, it would just blow us away, probably. Again, Paul talks about his own little brief trip to heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 5, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, (laughs) such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, (laughs) how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. Which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. In verse seven, he says, "Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations." Authority in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So just to, you know, sort of keep my feet on the ground, to remind me that I don't, I'm not Superman, and I don't fly. I was given this thorn, Paul says, because what I saw, he says, was glorious beyond description. These are the things that God has in store for his sheep, for those who love him, for those who have come under the tender care of the shepherd. And so this is a, this is a wonderful psalm. Excuse me for just a second. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. So again, remember, um, Psalm 22, Jesus as our shepherd. Psalm 23, Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus as our savior. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Jesus as our shepherd. And now, Psalm 24 will present Jesus as our sovereign or our king. The one who is worthy to be worshipped. Psalm of David, it says. Now, this may be speaking of the time that the ark was being brought up to Jerusalem by David from the house of Obed-Edom. But prophetically, I believe it speaks of the time when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom here on the earth. When he returns, we're told that he will place his foot on the Mount of Olives and it will cleave in two, it will separate in two, and he will pass through the Kidron Valley through the East Gate and set up his kingdom which will never be destroyed we'll see that as we get to the latter part of this But it starts off the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness the world and those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters so what right does God have to rule the earth? well he created it (laughs) and because of that It all belongs to Him, doesn't it? Another way to say this is the earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. And that includes the things that you and I possess. It all belongs to God. As far as I know, we didn't buy any of it from Him, did we? And to my knowledge, God hasn't said to any one of us directly that anything on the earth belongs to us as our own possession yes he made us rulers over the animals but only in a subservient sense to him and he bestowed upon us the herbs and the fruit trees for food but that doesn't mean we own them (laughs) that just means he says here I'm sharing with you God owns it all we are just stewards what about the things we make ourselves sorry you don't own them either Because We only make them With materials That belong to God Even the things That we make Belong to him Did you ask God For permission To use his stuff To make your stuff Do you have a receipt Proving That he either Took payment from you Or he gave it to you Then it belongs to him Bottom line So, God is worthy of our praise because He is the Sovereign One who made everything in our world and universe, including us. And He owns it all. Including us. Did you get that? Okay, verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in His holy place? Now this is an interesting question that many people like to speculate about. What's the answer? We don't you know we don't have to speculate about it. He gives us the answer in the next verse. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Now, if the immediate context is the priests bringing the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, then this could very likely be the instructions of David to the priests and the Levites who were transporting the ark who would be ministering before the Lord in the tabernacle. David would be instructing the priests and those that are to be carrying the ark of the covenant, those who will then be ministering before the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle in Jerusalem, standing there in the holy place. The warning was that they were to have clean hands, pure hearts, not lusting after emptiness, nor swearing deceitfully. Remember that when um, they, were, they had tried to actually to bring up the Ark before this, a few months before, And they didn't do it the way that the Lord had commanded. They put the ark in a cart that was pulled by oxen. And it looked like the the cart was going to tip over and thus the, the ark would tip over too. One of the fellows reached out his hand to steady the ark and he was struck dead in the process. That's because he wasn't supposed to touch the ark. No one was supposed to touch the ark. Instead they had these poles, they had these rings on the side of the ark and these poles that would go through the rings and they would not pick up the ark but they would pick up the poles. One fellow or maybe two guys on the back, two guys on the front, each holding a pole. The guys in the front holding the front of the pole, the guys in the back holding the back. But they didn't have to touch the ark because they weren't supposed to do that. Well, after this terrible thing happened, David did his homework, I think. And he found out the right way to do this according to the command of God. And now he's telling them that those of us who want to stand in his presence and serve him need to have clean hands and pure hearts without any inclination to worshiping anything other than God and then to be examples also of honesty. And by way of personal application, David is speaking of our outward actions our hands uh, and our inward attitude our heart remember Jesus said in in Matthew 5.8 blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God how can we do that well we know that it is only through Jesus Christ who gives us a new heart and with that new heart we see the fruit then that is born in our actions so it's not just lip service it's, it's fruit that is born in our lives. We can't do it with our own righteousness. We have to receive it from God. But still, there's a tendency, you know, once you're saved, uh, you, you have to have a desire. If you're really saved, you'll, you will have a desire to want to do what pleases the Lord and to want to avoid what displeases Him. And so the clean hands and, and, and the pure heart there speak of our desire to want to please God. Well, none of us are perfect. David certainly wasn't. Uh, but you know, we have to have a desire to want to do the right thing. And we have to also make the effort to do the right thing. He shall receive blessing, it says, verse 5, from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of of his salvation so again we, we can't do it with our own righteousness we get it from God this is Jacob the generation of those who seek him who seek your face Now it's interesting to me that he mentions Jacob right in the middle of this why does he mention Jacob well I think because Jacob is kind of a, a, a really good example of, of a guy who you know, was not a person with uh, clean hands and a pure heart. Not not somebody uh, who was an honest character. You know, he swore deceitfully many times, and yet eventually he comes to that place of relationship with God, and God, I'm sure, forgives him, and and God accepts him. So that gives me great comfort because God accepts all the Jacobs of this world, um, all the supplanters, all the heel catchers, all the deceivers. If God would accept Jacob the deceiver when he repented, then he'll accept us too. There is hope for all of us, and it's it's found in Jesus Christ. Verse seven Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads o you gates lift up you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord of hosts he is the king of glory now what what in the heck's going on here <laughs> Uh, What does he he mean here when he says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and, and all this? And he repeats it. Well, we're told in the book of Ezekiel that when the Lord comes again to establish God's kingdom upon the earth, that he shall set up his throne on Mount Zion. And there will be a gate towards the east that will be reserved for the prince. We see this in Ezekiel 44. He will enter into the courts of the temple by the gate towards the east. We're told that that gate is shut and shall remain shut for the prince. You can read that in Ezekiel 44. He'll enter in by the porch of that gate and he'll sit in the porch of that gate. It is quite possible that rather than this referring to the gates of heaven, that it is a prophetic uh, reference to the gate of the new temple, the gate towards the east through which the prince or the Messiah shall enter. It would seem that it was also a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah to the nation of Israel. As with prophecy, so often there are, are two-fold fulfillments. There's an initial fulfillment and then there's a, a later fulfillment. As Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to offer himself and to present himself as their Messiah, he followed the scriptures, riding on a donkey, making his descent from the Mount of Olives, coming through the gates into the temple. No doubt this was the eastern gate, on into the Temple Mount area. In anticipation of this, David looked ahead. As he looked ahead, he personifies the gates at the eastern entrance and he tells them to lift up your heads. He says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. In other words, gates? (laughs) This is important. (laughs) Somebody's going to come through you who's like the most important person ever. So lift up your heads, O you gates. Pay attention. He's personifying the gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. We know that when Jesus entered on Palm Sunday, he was rejected. Well, not by everybody. The children said Hosanna. And many of the others as well. But the leaders rejected him. He was despised by them. And thus the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our eyes from him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 3 and 5. So, who is the king of glory? None other than Jesus Christ our Lord. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was Jesus at His first coming. But in this passage, who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. There is another day coming when the Lord of glory, strong and mighty, mighty in battle, will come, set His foot on the Mount of Olives, and will enter again into Jerusalem. This time, as the King of glory, This time, to reign on the throne of David and to establish God's kingdom upon the earth. Now, some 700 years ago, the Turks read Ezekiel 44 that the Messiah would enter through the east gate. So they said, we'll take care of that. And they closed up the east gate. bunch of stones and and, uh, blocks there of stone. And they filled it up, they blocked it up. Also, they put a graveyard in the Kidron Valley so that he wouldn't pass through because Jews didn't pass through graveyards because that would make them unclean, right? It would be ceremonially unclean. So they put a graveyard there and they say to themselves, ah, that takes care of that. I had a a picture that I wanted to bring to you but I didn't have a a good way to, to show it to you that I took when I was in Israel of the Eastern Gate you can see how it's all blocked up, closed up. And, uh, and then just below it, in down on the slope from the wall down into the Kidron Valley is this cemetery. It's, a, it's an Arab cemetery. And so they figure that's, that's taken care of. Well, they probably didn't realize it at the time. But when they closed the gate up, they didn't realize that the real gate that Jesus went through was actually below that gate that that was a newer gate. <laughs> so they actually closed up the wrong gate. So all needs to happen is when the, you know, when Jesus steps on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two, it's going to take out that cemetery. It's probably going to reveal the gate that's down below, the one that we can see today, and the doors are going to be wide open. <laughs> They're going to be wide open. And the King of Glory is going to come in. this time to reign on the throne of David and to establish God's kingdom on the earth. The king is coming and man's attempts at stopping him are futile. Reminds me of Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> the Borg, you know, they made it in the Borg and he says, uh, 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 Star Trek, New, Next Generation next generation he says resistance is futile (laughs) resistance is futile the gates are going to be open the king of glory is going to be coming in those gates and to that end we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so Jesus as our savior Jesus as our shepherd and Jesus as our coming king Philippians 2, 9-10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, Psalm 25. Some have titled this psalm, God's Ways in Dark Days. Some feel that David wrote this psalm when his son Absalom and some of his closest friends were rebelling Against him. And David is crying out for direction and guidance from God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, he says. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. David was resting in the Lord and trusting in him. And all those who were making false accusations against David, were going to be dealt with. David was a good man, not perfect, and yet he gave the enemies of God a chance to come against him and the Lord he loved by some of the things that he did. We as Christians must remember that people will often picture God by the way we act. But David says, God, I trust in you. If God... Before us, Paul said, who can be against us? I put my trust in God. In another psalm, David said, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, verse 11. Back in Chronicles, we read of King Asa, who at the time of the invasion of the land by the Ethiopians and the Nubians, he cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord, our God. For we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. I just love that prayer of aces there. Second Chronicles 14.11 David is saying much the same thing. Lord, don't let me be ashamed. Don't let me be defeated my enemies. Lord, I am trusting in you. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. David waited on the Lord all day for direction, for guidance. God shows us. He teaches us. He leads us in the way that we should go through his word. That means that we need to be in His word, in fellowship with Him, on a daily basis. And we need to be willing to obey Him when we know what His will is for our lives. How important that we walk in the way of the Lord, that our life be directed and governed by Him. So many of the problems that we face are simply because we have not walked or been willing to walk in the Lord's ways. Verse 6, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness sake, O Lord. David is, is not appealing to God according to his righteousness. He saw, he, he knew who he was, he knew what he had done, he, he knew about his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, so he's asking God for mercy, his loving kindness to be poured out upon him. All the way through history, God has demonstrated himself to be merciful. God has demonstrated his loving kindness from the beginning. And so David prays an important prayer in verse 7. I'm sure that all of us can say amen to that. Lord, when you remember me, let mercy <laughs> cover the whole remembrance of me. You know, Lord, Just let mercy take care of it all. Because otherwise I'm toast. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice. And the humble he teaches his way. There are two ways you can go. God's way or your way. Now God will show you his way. He'll show you his way. The way in which you need to go. But you don't have to follow it. As Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Thus, the need for humility on our part. God guides and teaches the humble. If you're not getting any guidance, it may be time for a humility check. Check out the humble scale. And you know what? When When you can sit back and say, I'm humble... You can know for sure that you're not. (laughs) Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. God is always teaching us lessons of faith throughout our life, to deepen our faith, to draw us close to him. It's not always easy, but it's necessary for our spiritual growth. We just need to be in a place where we believe that God's ways are the right ways. No matter what our own intellect might be telling us. And we need to be willing to obey no matter what. All of the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. God is not going to send you down some path that's going to kill you. That's going to ruin you. His paths are mercy and truth. To such, notice, as keep his covenant and his testimonies. If you're not in the business of obeying God when you know what the truth of God is, then you can't make this claim for yourself. You can't say, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth for me, because you're not obeying the things that you know that God wants you to do, that you already know. You're not doing it. So you, you sort of remove yourself from that promise. Verse 11, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. God does not forgive us because we are worthy, we deserve it. He forgives us because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, making us as white as snow because of his righteousness being imputed to us. That's what he means when he asks for God's pardon because of his namesake. That's because of what Jesus did for us. <coughs> Verse 12. He I'm sorry, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach? In the way he chooses. He himself shall prosper. He himself shall shall dwell in prosperity. And his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he shall pluck my feet out of the net. God is not trying to to hide things from us. He, He wants to show us the truth. And yet we must be willing to receive it. He won't force us to receive it. David knew that he was in trouble, but he also kept his eyes on the Lord, knowing that God would rescue him from the enemy's trap. He shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain. Forgive all my sins. The a wonderful prayer of David. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Now, remember that many think that David wrote this psalm at the time of Absalom's rebellion when David had fled from Jerusalem. In the initial contacts with the armies, David's forces had been victorious, which may be why David seemed so upbeat in the first part of the psalm. But later on, things become a little bit more desperate. It looked like Absalom and his forces might prevail. And so, David's cry, beginning with verse 16, Turn to me, have mercy, I am desolate. I'm afflicted. I'm distressed. Look upon my affliction and my pain. Forgive my sins. Consider my enemies. For they are many. They had risen up against him. The popular movement seemed against David at this point. He says, They hate me with cruel hatred. Absalom was endeavoring to kill his father. And so David is praying for preservation because he has put his trust in the Lord. Let Integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. We, like David, as evil surrounds us, must wait in faith for God to deliver us. And it's not always easy. In fact, it may be very difficult. But we must rest in him. Go back to Psalm 23. We must rest in him, being assured that he is working. He is the King of Kings. Psalm 24. He will take care of things. And so may he help us to trust him and wait on him today. Frederick Nolan was running for his life during a time of religious persecution in North Africa. Exhausted, he found a small cave that he crawled into, figuring his pursuers would eventually catch up him and and find him there in the cave and put him to death. While waiting to be caught, he noticed a rather large spider weaving a web over the entrance to the cave that he was hiding in. And within just minutes, the web covered the mouth of the cave. When the pursuers got there, seeing the web they reasoned that he could not have gone inside. (laughs) Or else he would have broken the web. So they figured, he's not here. (laughs) And they went on looking for him elsewhere. And his life was saved. So, how desperate is your situation today? Do you believe God can provide the spider web (laughs) that will keep the enemy from discovering you and will save your life just in the nick of time. Maybe everything's okay today. Who knows what tomorrow may bring. May God help us to keep our eyes on him. Thank you Lord for your word. Thank you for this time. I pray that your word will penetrate our hearts. The things that we have spoken about tonight, the many different little applicational points that we have made. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to us. And Lord, where we see an area of our lives that we need to surrender to you and obey you in. Give us the strength and the ability to do that so that we can have the clean hands and the pure heart that David was talking about. Our desire, Lord, is to honor you. Not just with our words but with our lives. Help us to do that now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.